that addresses the, the subject of the Lord's Supper outside the Gospels themselves. And I believe that it's, uh, it's helpful, it's beneficial for us to be reminded periodically of why we celebrate or observe the Lord's Supper and how we do that. Um, as we're going to see in today's passage, it is uh, critical that we take the Lord's Supper seriously and that we approach it with the utmost reverence. Um, I would normally go ahead and read the passage to begin with, but since it's a lengthy passage, we'll just take it in sections as we proceed through it. And we're just going to kind of hit some highlights. This will not be an in-depth study of each verse uh, from verses 17 through 34, but we'll try to hit the highlights. So uh, before we get into the Word of God, let's go back uh, and uh, plead with him in prayer to bless our time in his Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time together today. We thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to observe the, the supper that you have given to us as a commemoration of the, the death of your Son. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in us and on us now as we open up the Word that he inspired Paul to write. Lord, that uh, you would just bring conviction and correction and instruction and, and comfort. And through it all, Father, please, we pray that our eyes would be lifted up, our spiritual eyes lifted up to behold Christ on the cross in that great act of sacrifice and love um, that he did for his people there. May Christ be glorified, and that is our prayer in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to divide these uh, verses up with four main points. Um, the first one is uh, the abuse of the Lord's Supper. We're going to find that the Corinthian church was abusing the Lord's Supper, and that'll be uh, taken from verses 17 through 22. Um, as, you, as you read through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, you find out that there were a lot of serious problems in that congregation. And of course, we know that in most of the New, the New Testament epistles, um, Peter or Paul or whoever uh, will be addressing problems, but Corinth was full of problems. Um, some of their problems were doctrinal, but most of them are what we would be called, would call practical or in practice, the way they were living, the way they were conducting church. There were a lot of problems in that area, uh, problems in their relationships. Um, right out of the gate in chapter 1, Paul takes them on uh, for their division. They were a disunited church. They had divided themselves up into different parties behind Peter and Paul, and some claim to be uh, ultimately followers of Jesus, and set those men against each other, and they were deeply divided. And Paul said in uh, chapter 3, he said, you're like babes in Christ, you're immature, the way you're characterized by division and disunity. There was open quarreling. Uh, we find that they were tolerating gross immorality in the lives of some of the church members. They were suing each other in pagan courts. They were misusing spiritual gifts. They were proud. They were unloving. They were, they were worldly. And those, those sins manifested themselves in addition to other areas, but in their, their church meetings, their worship services, and even in their observance of the Lord's Supper. So let's go ahead and read verses 17 through 22. Paul writes, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So number one, we see the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Um, we need to stop right here and ask, what kind of supper was the, 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 the church of Corinth holding? Because as we read this text and read through the full passage, it's evident that they were not just eating a, a little piece of, of, of bread and a small amount of wine, but it was a full meal that was in view. So, so what's going on there? Well, let's take just a couple minutes to consider that. The, the evidence from this passage and from outside historical sources relating to the the early church was that early on the churches would hold what you and I would call the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine together with a a fellowship dinner or a fellowship supper, Uh, what sometimes we might call, uh, especially here in the South, a covered dish dinner, dinner on the grounds, potluck. It seems like what the early church often did was they combined the observance of the Lord's Supper with a a fellowship meal. Um, This may be what is in view in Jude verse 2. It says these, talking about false teachers, are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So a love feast, a feast of charity, that may be what, uh, what, what is in view here in Corinth, but it very clearly they had a fuller meal that they were enjoying alongside the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper. So the purpose seemed to be to provide an opportunity for fellowship, uh, building up unity, um, ensuring that the poorer members of the church got a, got a decent meal, and to observe the Lord's Supper. But as Paul writes here, they were abusing the fellowship supper, and they were being irreverent towards the Lord's Supper in several ways. First of all, as we read in verses 17 through 19, they were displaying their divisiveness. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So this is a badly disunited church. Um, we again see that in several different chapters, and Paul's having to hit that, that, uh, that the issue of unity in Christ heavily with them. And it may be that during these, this fellowship supper and Lord's Supper, maybe the different parties refused to sit with each other, or maybe they were carrying their arguments into the, the, the meal. And so it just tended to spoil the whole thing and make it irreverent. Um, Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But when there is division in a church, it's not good and it's not pleasant. It just has a way of, of spoiling and poisoning everything that goes on. So they were abusing it through their divisiveness and then also through their greediness and gluttony, verses 20 through 21. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not the Lord's Supper, to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you may be calling it that, but your behavior is mean meaning it really isn't in spirit. Verse 21, for in eating, everyone takes his own supper ahead of others. 
So there's this greed going on. It's almost, it's, it's, it's childish immaturity. Um, some of the members are getting there first and they're eating, their, they're eating food before the others arrive and the others who arrive don't have, don't have any meal to, to eat. And so it may be that the very poor who were the ones who were supposed to be ministered to um, by providing this meal, they, they go without. So it was uh, characterized by divisiveness and greediness or gluttony, but also, and this is almost unimaginable, drunkenness. At the end of verse 21, uh, one is hungry and another is drunk. Um, so uh, abusing the, the very wine that is there as part of the fellowship and to be used as the fellowship supper, they're treating it like a, like a pagan bacchanalia or something. Uh, when you go through 1 Corinthians, it seems like a lot of these people who had been saved out of paganism had just kind of carried some of those, those activities and habits into the church of God. So their, their fellowship supper, their Lord's supper, has been characterized by divisiveness, gluttony, greediness, and even drunkenness. And so what's happened here is that their meetings and their observance of the Lord's Supper has become an irreverent disgrace. Again, verse 22, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So Paul suggested it would be better for you just to end the supper completely and eat at home rather than continue this way. And going back to what I said about the history of how they seem to have combined a fellowship supper with the Lord's Supper, there is evidence that the church ended up splitting out these two to, 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 to try to help uh, correct some of these problems. And today, you and I generally observe the Lord's Supper by itself apart from a, a fellowship supper. But he said, you despise the church of God by your actions and your attitudes, and you've shamed the poor says, you know, already uh, uh, the poor are going to tend to be self-conscious conscious of, of, of their poverty, especially around wealthier members, but then to show up and then have nothing at the fellowship supper because somebody was greedy and ate beforehand, it, it, it just became a deplorable situation, a shocking situation. And, you know, if you had lived back then... And you and your Christian family moved to Corinth, and you're excited about visiting the local church that Sunday, uh, you probably would have been shocked and wondered whether or not you'd even go back to that church. Things were so deplorable at the church of of Corinth. So they were, uh, among many other things, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. So Paul begins to correct their abuse of the Lord's Supper by reminding them about its origin. So that brings us to point number two, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Point number two, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we find that in verses 23 through 26. So uh, let's read verses 23 through 25 to begin with. For I, I, Paul, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, as you drink it in remembrance of, of me." So Paul says, I received this from the Lord. Now the significance there is, if you'll remember, Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. 
He was not one of the original 12. Um, at that point in his life, he was a rabid uh, 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 anti-believer, if you will. He was against the Christians. We find out later that he, his name at that point was Saul of Tarsus. You get in the book of Acts. He is the number one top persecutor of the church. So he was not one of the original apostles. In fact, he was, he was the prime persecutor of the church until God saved him and called him dramatically there on the road to Damascus when he was headed to that city to persecute Christians. So God saved Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he becomes Paul the apostle, and Christ instructs him directly about doctrine. And here Paul says that Jesus himself gave Paul instructions about the Lord's Supper. Remember, he was not there at the Last Supper where, when, the Lord, when the Lord Jesus um, um, had, his, has, had the original 12 there. So he received his information, his teaching about the Lord's Supper by revelation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, that really serves to underscore how important the Lord's Supper is that our Lord Jesus directly revealed to Paul about the, about the Lord's Supper. That underscores just how important it is. Well, if you'll remember at that Last Supper, the Lord Jesus has gathered his disciples and he is observing the Passover meal. And the Passover was to commemorate the exodus of the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. Um, and and uh, the uh, in, in particular, um, how he spared them and the plague of the firstborn because they took the blood of the lamb and put it around the door and and the destroyer passed over the people of God. They were saved by the blood. So our Lord Jesus Christ took that Passover meal which actually looked forward to him and his sacrifice as the lamb of God and he turned it into the Lord's Supper. From that point on, his people would now look back on the accomplishment of what the Passover foreshadowed. So the Passover looked forward to Jesus' atonement, and now the last, the Lord's Supper looks back at that atonement. First uh, Corinthians 5 says, so, uh, 5 7 says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So the Passover was fulfilled, what it pictured came to pass and was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you and I continue continue uh, 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 observing a portion of that Passover meal that now looks back at redemption accomplished in in Christ. And he commanded us, his people, to observe it perpetually until he comes back again. Um, There in, let's see, verse 26, for as often as as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he Till he come, that raises the question: You know, how often should we observe the Lord's Supper? Well, you're going to uh, Christians come up with a lot of different answers. There's actually some who uh, observe it once a year because the Passover was observed once a year. Um, that seems a little too infrequent, and it's really hard to believe that Paul is correcting a situation that only happened once a, was only happening once a year in Corinth. This seemed to be a more regular thing. Um, so I think it was supposed to be observed perhaps more than once a year. Not that it's wrong to do it only once a year because the Bible actually does not stipulate it. Um, most churches settle on maybe once a quarter, once a month. Some do 
observe it every, every Sunday, but we can't point to a verse or a passage that tells us specifically how often to do it. But we are told, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come, which leads us to point number three, which is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The purpose of the Lord's Supper. And uh, we'll be going to still be in the same set of verses there. We'll be looking specifically at 24 through 26, a little bit more in depth. So what's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What's the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Well, the the vast majority of Christian denomination, even those that so-called Christian denominations, observe the Lord's Supper. Now, it's called by several different different names um, and different different fellowships. Uh, for example, Roman Catholics call it Mass. I'll talk a little bit more, more about that in a moment. <clears throat> Some more liturgical denominations refer to it as Eucharist. This would be Episcopalian, Church of England, and so forth. Um, that Where do they get the word Eucharist? Well, the, the Greek word for um, to be thankful is Eucharisto. So he broke the bread and gave thanks. So it's based on giving thanks for the bread, Eucharista. So Eucharisto. So uh, to to be grateful or to give thanks. Um, it's also called communion. Um, I don't know what your translation says, but if you look back at chapter ten in Corinthians, verse sixteen, chapter ten, verse sixteen, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not the communion? of the body of Christ. Let's look at verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So there you have the word communion in reference to the Lord's Supper. So that's a good biblical term, communion. And then, of course, we have uh, the term the Lord's Supper, which Paul used in verse 20. Now, most non-liturgical Protestants, like Bible churches and Baptists, we prefer communion and Lord's Supper because those are the names that we uh, uh, for the ordinance that we find here in Scripture. So communion or, or Lord's Supper. But whatever name you call it, it, is, it has been an unbroken practice in Christendom for 2,000 years. And yet, as with baptism, there are some very different beliefs about the Lord's Supper. Some of them are radically different. Now, considering the warnings that we're going to see in this passage about the Lord's Supper, I think it is very important that we understand what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? Okay, all of these groups that I've mentioned, they would see it in connection somehow with the death of Christ. They would use bread and the fruit of the vine, either wine or, or grape juice. But beyond that, there is a vastly different understanding of the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper and the significance of the elements. I'm just going to touch on this briefly, but for the purpose of, of helping us to understand why it is so important uh, to, 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 to understand what the meaning is. I mentioned the Roman Catholics call the Lord's Supper Mass. They hold to a doctrine called, it's kind of a long word, transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. So substantiation, you hear the word substance, and trans, transformed. So the substance is transformed. And the belief is that the elements, the bread and the wine, that after a pronouncement by the Roman Catholic priest, that the bread and the wine literally is transformed into the body and blood of Christ. 
Okay, that's a very important point. Transubstantiation, after a pronouncement by the Roman Catholic priest, the bread is literally turned into the body of Christ, and the wine is literally turned into the blood of Christ, even though it still appears to be bread and wine. Um, this is based on a, or partly based, I would say, on a literal interpretation of, of uh, verses like where Jesus uh, gives the bread and says, this is my body, and then says, this is my blood, it is taken to be literally true. Or uh, John 6, 54, where Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. Okay, so those are are, are taken very literally, or those passages are taken to support the doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, So again, the, 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 the Bread and wine literally turn into the body of blood in Christ, even though they do not change in appearance. And then Christ is offered up again in a sacrifice at every Mass. So it's a continual or weekly sacrifice of Christ. I'm going to read to you a selection out of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, which was, uh, of course, based on the Westminster Confession. And this is regard to the Lord's Supper. It says, "...that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. And it has. Uh, The Reformers, the Protestants looked at Mass as being blasphemous uh, because Christ's sacrifice was in the past, it was historical, it was unrepeatable, it was sufficient, it was once for all, it forever accomplished the salvation of God's people, a completely sufficient atonement for the sins of his people. Whereas the Roman Catholic Mass is necessary uh, uh, to contribute to the salvation of, of the person. It adds to what Christ did. In fact, it's a continual offering up. And so Protestants said, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy because it implies that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross was not sufficient that he has to continually be offered up. Hebrews 10, 12-14 says, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Once for all, complete, perfect. That was what Jesus did on the cross. It does not need to be repeated, and, and to imply that it does is a degradation of what Christ did on the cross. Again, quoting from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. By the way, this is chapter 30 that we're looking at, paragraph 2. In this ordinance, in the Lord's Supper, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin of the living or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise to God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. 
So this doctrine of transubstantiation must be roundly rejected as explaining the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. We go on, another another, um, doctrine or explanation would be consubstantiation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. That was Martin Luther's doctrine. He revolted against the the Roman Catholic Mass, but he couldn't quite give up the idea that somehow Christ's body and blood were still present in some way alongside the elements, the C-O-N, consubstantiation. Um, his, his argument and teaching on that is complex. It's confusing. I'm not even going to bother to go into depth on it, but it put him in clear contradiction to Catholicism, but also other reformers who saw the Lord's Supper as, and this would be the third one, memorial. It's not transubstantiation. It's not consubstantiation. It's a memorial. The bread and the wine symbolize, or they represent, the body and blood of Christ. They are... Uh, they're set apart. They're set apart from common use to use in the Lord's Supper. We don't view them as just common items of food, but they are simply bread and wine or the, 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 the fruit of the, of the grape. They are simply bread and wine. The Lord's Supper doesn't save. It's not necessary to be saved, but it is a vivid reminder, a vivid reminder to us that Christ has already offered up the once-for-all sacrifice of his body and blood that we might be saved. And this is the key, folks. Again, if you look at uh, verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Not this do to sacrifice me again and again and again, not, not, to, not, not to add to your salvation, but do this in remembrance of me. And then he repeats it with the cup. Do this in remembrance of, of me. And that is truly the New Testament view. That's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, For as often as you, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death Till he come. So this is kind of like preaching. When you and I, when you and I partake of the of the of the bread and the and the fruit of of, of the vine, we are we are proclaiming. We are we are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saying that uh, that we believe that His death on the cross was sufficient for our salvation. His death on the cross. Our, uh, in his death on the cross, our debt was paid in full. So it is, it is a declaration, it's a demonstration, a proclamation of the, of the death of Christ. And he said, observe it until I come back. Observe it till I come back. It's a memorial. It's a vivid reminder of his sacrifice. Let me uh, next read from Grace Bible Church's doctrinal statement on the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper commemorates... There's that word, commemorates, memorial, commemorates the death of Jesus Christ. The two elements, the bread and the cup, symbolize the body and blood of the Lord. Celebrating the work of Christ is a time of self-examination and confession. The Lord's Supper is also called communion, which pictures the fellowship believers have with the Lord and with each other. This ordinance proclaims his death until Christ comes again. And again, that's, that is Grace Bible Church's doctrinal statement on the Lord's Supper. There's that phrase in there that it's a time of self-examination and confession. And, uh, and that article of faith quotes the next verses. So let's go on to point number four, which will be the preparation for the Lord's Supper. 
the preparation for the Lord's Supper. We'll, uh, that, that's going to encompass or pertain to verses 27 through 34. So therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So, proceeding from that last point, does the symbolic nature of the Lord's Supper diminish its sacredness? Some people would say that, well, if it's just a representation, if it's just symbolic, it's not really that sacred. No, 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 no. Pictures are important. Representations are important. Uh, you, you and I know that in every everyday life. Uh, not to get off into politics, but uh, most of us are bothered when the flag of our nation is disrespected, right? We see somebody disrespecting the flag. We take that as they are disrespecting the nation and our values as a nation, or at least our original foundation uh, uh, our foundational values. Um, people overseas who hate the United States, when they burn the flag, they're making a statement that they hate it. And you and I react uh, the opposite. So symbols are important. Even though they're just symbols or representations, they are important. And when you talk about pictures in Scripture, they are, they are incredibly important. So we are to reverence the Lord's Supper because of what it pictures which means when you and I partake of it, we must do so in a worthy manner. As Paul says there in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, how is that? What does he mean by that? Well, first, let me, let me uh, it's not a digression because it's going to come right back into the, this particular topic, but the question arises, who should take the Lord's Supper? When the, when the bread and the wine or the grape juice are distributed, who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, it, it's as with baptism, it's got to be a believer. That man or woman or young person must be a believer, someone who has received the Lord Jesus Christ spiritually by repentance and faith, someone who has truly repented of his or her sins and has sincerely placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago, trusting in Jesus and his work alone for, for salvation. So it is an ordinance for believers only. So again, the Lord's Supper represents what Christ did to save his people. So for an unsaved person to partake of the Lord's Supper, at best it's like celebrating a marriage or celebrating an anniversary when you're not married. It's kind of meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's representing something that never happened. But it's actually worse than that because it is actually, it's actually a mockery because if the person has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a mockery then to participate in the Lord's Supper, which pictures what Jesus did to save people. 
So an unbeliever should not participate in the Lord's in the Lord's Supper. Um, that also answers a question: When should a child? When is a child old enough to take the Lord's Supper? Well, that's the wrong question. It's when that person becomes a believer and is saved. At that point, he or she uh, can begin uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. But being saved is just the first requirement. As we've just read in these verses, there's also another requirement, and that is that we take it in a worthy manner that we take it in a worthy manner. Again, there were, there were some of the church members of Corinth. They were coming to the Lord's Supper and partaking it uh, uh, while they were living in unrepentant sin. Now, we all sin. We are all sin. As long as we're in this body, we're all going to sin. But we are to be continually repenting and seeking the Holy Spirit's help to, to, to be more holy in our practice. But, but many of them were living in flagrant sin that they were not calling sin. They weren't repenting of it, and yet they were taking the Lord's Supper. That was to take it in an unworthy manner or, to, or coming while they're still at odds with their, with their fellow church members and, and there being something between them. Um, they were failing, as Paul said in verse 29, to discern the Lord's body. In other words, he gave his body, he shed his blood to, as the sacrifice to cleanse them from sin, but they were living in sin intentionally. They were, they were persisting in sin, and this made them unqualified unqualified to partake of the Lord's Supper, to participate in the, in the Lord's Supper. So what they were showing was that they were completely unmindful of what the bread and the wine was picturing. I stated that pictures are important. Um, those of you who have children, you have photos of your children. Or if you don't have children, you have a photo of a, of a loved one, a parent or, or, or a sibling or somebody. And you know it's more than just a piece of paper with some color arranged on it, right? If somebody took the photo of that child and said, ooh, and scratched it out and tore it up and threw it away, how would you feel? They didn't just tear up a piece of paper with some color arranged on it, right? No, you're going to be hurt and offended because that's a representation of that child you love or that parent or that sibling or a friend, somebody who, who you love. And, and by that person desecrating representation of them, you felt it was an attack on their person. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. When we take it, when we're persisting in sin, um, and are not repenting, or when we're we're persisting in division with someone and not going through biblical steps to try to to try to to work it out and doing these things that the Corinthians were doing, you know, uh, coming and, and eating and, and eating up all the food before the poor could get their portion, or 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 abusing the wine and getting drunk, it was like they were just tearing up a picture of the cross, and that was. That was, uh, that was despising the Lord. It was gross irreverence and a complete lack of thankfulness. And Paul said God had chastised some of the members of Corinth. He had chastised them with physical weakness, sickness, and he even took some of them out prematurely. Yes, it means that he had, he had taken their, literally taken their lives. Uh, this is serious stuff. And he, and he said that 
you know, we need to judge ourselves. We need to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. And where, where the Holy Spirit brings to mind sin, we need to repent of it on the spot and, and take care of that. And there's somebody that we've had a falling out with and we haven't taken biblical steps to be, to, to, to be reconciled. We need to take those steps. Um, we need to take care of all that kind of thing. And it doesn't mean that, oh, I just need to clean my life up before I take the Lord's Supper. It's okay to live in sin. The rest, no, of course not. But the Lord's Supper is a time for us to be forced to reflect on those things and to repent and receive cleansing. Otherwise, we invite God's chastisement on us. He'll chastise us because He loves us. He will chastise us to bring us to repentance and to cleansing and and reconciliation. So we need to take it in a worthy manner. Verse 28 is the key. Let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. It's like the Old Testament sacrifices that they were offering up to picture the, 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 the coming of Christ when he would sacrifice himself. They had to do it with a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, 16 through 17 said, For you do not desire sacrifice, else would I give it. This is, by the way, this is one of uh, David's psalms of repentance uh, for adultery and murder. For you do not desire sacrifice, else would I give it. Uh, you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, bo- a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David knew it's no good for me to go down to the temple or the tabernacle, excuse me, that point and offer up a sacrifice if I'm not truly repentant over what I've done. I have to have a broken and contrite heart, and that's what God wants, is a broken and contrite heart. And then in the Old Testament, their sacrifice was acceptable. And then in the New Testament, our partaking of the Lord's Supper is acceptable to Him. It must be with a heart of repentance. Which raises the question, I'm going to go ahead and close, uh, work on closing out this point. Um, is there ever a time when a believer should refrain from the Lord's Supper? Um, and uh, and in our former church, Pam's in my former church, there was a dear elderly lady, a dear saint of God, that I, it, word got back to me that she was not participating in the Lord's Supper because she did not feel worthy to do that. Now, I applaud her for her humility, but she was misunderstanding it, okay? None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. That's why God gives us grace and mercy, okay? That's unmerited favor. None of us are worthy. What what Paul is saying here is don't take it in an unworthy manner. Don't desecrate the picture by persisting in sin or being at odds with your brother or sister in Christ or by, by being overcome by gluttony and drunkenness and so forth. Um, so uh, I was able to talk to her and gently explain that to her. Again, I sure appreciate her humble spirit, but we're all unworthy. It's, we're not take, to take it in an unworthy manner. We are to examine ourselves and to, and to repent. Now, that being said, there may be, there may be at a, a given time in any believer's life where he or she may just need to, to, to pull back and, and just let the elements pass. And uh, I've done that before. And, and if there is something that uh, a brother or sister, a church member is still dealing with, and they know they're not at that point of repentance yet, they need to be there, it may be that it is good and appropriate to not participate at the time. And we should never make anyone feel 
uh, singled out if they don't. If they're an unbeliever among us, we're glad to have them among us so that they, don't, they, they, they do not need to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, or, or a believer that has something going on that would disqualify him or her at the time. Um, if, we, if we know in our hearts, I can't, I can't participate in this in a worthy manner at this point, then it is best just to, just to abstain with the commitment that I'm going to get back. Okay, I'm going to get this. I'm going to be on my knees before the Lord and take care of this of this issue. So, um, again, God disciplines us if we desecrate the picture of His Son. That being said, we should not approach the table with superstition. We shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't say, "Oh, I, I fear to." I fear to take the Lord's Supper and sin because God might judge us. No, that's not the right reason. The right reason is love and thankfulness. Love and thankfulness for what the Lord Jesus Christ has, has done for us. So to kind of wrap it up, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. By the way, we, like, we prefer the word ordinance rather than sacrament because sacrament means that some saving grace is being conveyed in it, and we don't believe that. Uh, so we call it an ordinance. So it's an ordinance that was given directly by Christ to believers as a vivid reminder of his atoning death on our behalf. It doesn't save us. It doesn't help save us. It doesn't keep us saved. It vividly reminds us the terrible price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid to save his people. So we've got to partake it with the correct doctrinal understanding and in the right attitude, and we do benefit from it. There is certainly a grace conveyed to us in a certain way because in meditating on what Christ did for us, it tends to increase our love and our thankfulness and move us to a greater desire for holiness and obedience, and it draws us closer to the Lord and to each other, greater communion with each other.